Hello, and welcome to the Love Shared podcast from the River Church in Redlands with the latest in our dialogue series. Our monthly discussion where we sit down with great guests and dive into conversation at the intersection of faith and society. We are so glad that you have joined us for episode 18, where Pastor Nick Intout interviews with Tyler Robert, the North American ambassador from Beautiful Gate in Lesotho, Africa. Tyler tells us all about his work with Beautiful Gate and their mission to reach out to orphaned, abandoned, and neglected children by giving them the love that they need and deserve. Check out the show notes for any additional information from the episode. Now, let's get started. This is our first dialogue of 2016, the fall 2016. We're sitting with Tyler Robert, who is visiting us from Lesotho. Uh, in South Africa, and he is the North American Ambassador for Beautiful Gate. Is it, that's right. That's right. That's right. So, um, you are you've been working uh, serving at this orphanage um, for three years, two years. It's really only been a year and a half. Okay. Right now. Cool. So. And um, still pretty new. <laughs> your, your part of your role is to be stateside, mm-hmm. and then you're in Africa. Uh, half the year is it six months and six months? Yeah, roughly six months and six months. So split in half, and then so the year, the half of the year that I'm there, I'm on the ground working with primarily the volunteer teams that come through, um, and we get volunteer teams from all over the world. But I work with the ones that come from the United States and Canada, and I'm just kind of an on the ground point person leader for them. So they have someone to guide them around while they're while they're doing that, and I lead their devotions and and worship and just kind of assign them to different houses and their different duties. Um, and then when there aren't teams around, I just am kind of there to do whatever I'm needed to do. Um, day-to-day activities with the kids or the house mothers, whatever they need. Gotcha. I do that. That's awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, as a former intern here, I can just speak to your versatility and kind of <laughs> ability to fit in with whatever we threw at you. So that's a great role for you. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about Beautiful Gate and uh, the problem that it was established to solve. Like, why does Beautiful Gate exist? Right. Um, so probably the easiest way to really get to that is just a little little bit of history is to say that a couple named Ray and Sue Hawkinson, um, Rhodesian by nature, and Rhodesia is modern-day Zimbabwe, so they're an African couple. Um, they found themselves on mission in Lesotho in 2001. And previous to that, in 1998, the capital city of Lesotho, Maseru, had been going through just a ton of political unrest. Um, there was a lot of changes going on in the government that the, the common man did not appreciate. And so there were a lot of riots that arose from that, and the riots led to a lot of fires that essentially burned down the entire city of Maseru. And this only exacerbated problems of poverty and um, HIV and AIDS and, and being able to get help for that, and then abandonment and orphaning. Um, these problems were already there, but it made it 10 times worse. And so in 2001, when Ray and Sue were there, um, Sue and their daughter Tanya decided to go to the hospital one day and say, just, hey, how can we help? Is there anything we can do? Um, And these hospitals were so overrun, still three years later, reeling from these fires and this disaster, trying to uh, catch up, and they're just not being able to. And what Sue and Tanya saw were three little children who were abandoned, had been placed on a gurney and pushed off in the corner essentially being left to die because there was no one to pay for their medical bills. There was no free nurses or doctors to care for them because they were so busy caring for so many other people. Um, So these children really had no chance at all. And Sue and Tanya saw this. Their hearts were broken. And they 
they decided we got to do something. And so they asked the hospital staff, can we come day after day and just care for these kids? Can we love them? Can we clothe them? Can we feed them? Can we read to them? Whatever the case may be, can we, can we come and, and serve these kids? And they said, sure, knock yourself out. The only stipulation is you can't take them from the hospital at the end of the day. And they said, fine. So they did this for a couple of months. And at the end of this time, uh, Sue and Tanya are both just their hearts are broken and they really want to be able to do more. Um, and so they, they went to Ray and he had heard about what they'd been going through these months caring for these kids in the hospital. And he said, I agree, we need to do something more. So he went through all the necessary hoops and, and stuff he had to jump through in order to create essentially Beautiful Gate. Um, and so once that was set, they went to the hospital to pick up these three abandoned kids to take them into their own home and care for them. And they left with seven. And so Beautiful Gate started in this little tiny duplex. The Hawkinson family lived on one side and then the, the seven kids and the few house mothers at the time lived on the other side. And so Beautiful Gate was born out of a desire to literally serve the orphan and the widow. Um, exactly the, the call that we receive in James 1 verse 27 to, to the true religion to the Lord is this, to care for the orphan and the widow and not to be polluted by the world. So you have, you had a country who already was, uh, experience, I mean, just poor, there's yep. a lot of poverty mm-hmm. and then you have political kind of unrest, yep. which exacerbates that problem, which impacts the most vulnerable in a yes. culture, right? So yes. the, the, the babies and, um, that was 15 years ago. Correct. So today, why is why does beautiful gate still exist? Why are, why are there still, mm-hmm. um, you know, orphans? I think you said you, you gave a stat downstairs, but up until this point you've helped how many, can you say those? Numbers yeah, we've, again? so over the last 15 years that beautiful gate has existed, we've cared for over 470 orphans or other vulnerable children. Um, we've been able to adopt out, um, 201, uh, at this point, roughly 140 have been reunified with biological family, and there's currently between 65 and 70 kids there right now. Um, so why, like, yeah, where are these kids coming from? Yeah, In and because Lesotho is a small-ish right. country, right? Two yes. million people. Yep, or so? it's roughly two million people. Um, and the last time I checked the statistics, it's 200,000 orphans. Um, so 10% of the country are orphans, and wow. I mean, honestly, it's still a lot of the same issues. Um, there's, there's still so much poverty. About 60% of the population lives on less than $1.25 a day. Um, there's, there's not a lot, of, a lot of good working conditions, 40% unemployment rate. Um, so in order to bring children into the world and care for them, it's just, it's not, it doesn't work half of the time. Um, and another huge issue that's a really a cultural issue that, really, really, really plays into why we see a lot of kids still coming to us, um, is that it's a very patriarchal society still. And so they, especially out in the rural areas, Maseru, where we are, is the capital, the most industrialized, but that's only 20% of the country. 80% of the country is very rural, all in the mountains, um, still a very tribal and village-like culture with, with chiefs and um, you, you protect your bloodline and all those kinds of things. And so when a young boy gets to be probably 10, 11, 12, it's time to prove himself as a man. Um, And in order to do that, they have to perform different tasks, some of them going and destroying uh, another person's crops to prove that you're a man, or going and stealing someone's livestock to prove that you're a man. Um, 
but the hardest one for us, especially, the last step is always to take advantage of a woman, to prove that you're a man. So you have young schoolgirls who, f first of all, the fact that they have the opportunity to go to school is incredible in and of itself, but these young schoolgirls walking to school and literally being gang raped so that these boys can prove that they're men. And then the, a lot of the times that leads to unwanted pregnancy and as I mentioned before, the purity of the bloodlines, the father is not from that village or from that tribe. So at best, the child and the mother would be welcomed as the village outcasts. And at worst, both of them would be shunned completely and have no, no ties anymore. And so these, these women, these young women, are left between the hardest rock and the hardest hard place any of us could ever imagine. Um, and so that's why we still see so much abandonment. And it's really hard for us from a Western perspective to see abandonment as anything but a curse. Um, but knowing what these women go through for them personally, but also the fact that they have no means then to provide for a child when they've been shunned and can't provide for themselves. Um, to abandon a child in a highly populated area, oftentimes we find them with either a pack of diapers or a small diaper bag next to them. And um, a lot of the times these women will, will set a child there and then kind of run off to hide and, and watch to make sure that their child is found and very reminiscent of the story of Moses when his mother had to you know put him in in the basket send him down the river but she sent her daughter to watch and make sure that someone was there to care for him mm. um, we see that a lot and so and I say that because it's easier for us again as Westerners to look at abandonment and think who could be so monstrous and 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 hate a child so much to do this and you know I'd be lying if I said there weren't cases like that where we find children in the most horrific conditions and as a result of someone just not caring. But those are really fewer and far between uh, today. The ones we see now are more often these young women who just don't have a choice and they really do want to provide the best possible care for their children and they realize that they can't provide that. Wow. Um, say something about... Uh, I know when we were there in 2003 and four, mm -hmm. the big dialogue was around HIV yep. and trying to educate and, um, you know, trying to remove the taboo of dialogue around uh, mm -hmm. sex yep. uh, among, you know, rural um, village folk and stuff. So can you say, uh, say something about that? And, and is that still um, at the, front of people's minds mm -hmm. and uh are you are you seeing um that as a, as a challenge and a problem that sure. your that beautiful gate is a part of the, right. the solution there yeah so beautiful or rather lesotho is as far as i know last time i checked is still ranked as number two country in the world that is affected by hiv and aids i think it's currently either one in three or one in four people are affected by it um so it's still a huge problem um I can't say much in terms of in the rural areas how much education is, is being put forth. I just, I don't know. But I do know in, in the city, the dialogue is happening. Um, you see posters and stuff about safe sex and, and all those kinds of things, trying to prevent it. Um, but one of the biggest, specifically for Beautiful Gate, one of the biggest blessings we've seen is in 2007, um, Baylor University and Bristol-Myers Squibbs came together to form a relationship and they built a clinic in Maseru. Um, and it used to be that we as, as Beautiful Gate were able to take our driver and our nurse and several of our house mothers and take all of our kids who have been either 
tested positive for HIV or even exposed to HIV, take them in once a month to get checked, get their medications and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was really a burden on us just because so many people were taken out of commission. So the head doctor at Baylor, who also happens to be the president of Beautiful Gates Board in Lesotho, said, no, 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 we're going to make this work. Once a month, I'm going to come to you on your campus. I'm going to take a day. She checks all of our kids to make sure that they're, they're getting good quality care, make sure that everything is going well. She then goes through and checks all of our house mothers to make sure they're cared for. And if there's still time, she'll even look at some of the volunteers if they're not feeling well. Um, but in terms of the HIV and AIDS question, that relationship that we now have with um, Baylor University's clinic means that we get all of the ARVs and other HIV AIDS medication for our kids completely free. And our full-time on-campus nurse, she is well-trained and able to care for those kids and make sure that the medication is administered at the right time and the right doses and all that kind of stuff. So in a, in a country where one in three or one in four people are affected by HIV and AIDS, our campus, I think, currently has two or three positive children, um, which is, is unheard of, given that we have almost 75 kids. Wow. Something I wasn't aware of um, years ago, but heard, I think it was at Beautiful Gate or maybe at an orphanage in Mexico, was that if a student, a kid is born, um, that that can be reversed through... Um, proper care yeah. and nutrition and mm -hmm. medication and um, do you do do people in Lesotho uh, the Basotho people um, <laughs> is this like conversation that they are having uh, that that you think locally they are having about um, health HIV sex I mean you mentioned the billboards but mm -hmm. has it gotten down to sort of like grassroots. I mean, you mentioned uh, earlier this afternoon, um, the chief of the village where you guys live. Mm -hmm. Is it something that he would say, this is a problem uh, that's, that's killing our people? Or um, is it not at that level? It's definitely at the upper echelons. It's working its way down. I don't know to what extent, honestly, it is at, among the village chiefs and those kinds of things. I think at this point it's pretty hard to deny that it's an issue, yeah. um, but whether that means people are actually taking proactive steps, um, like I said, especially in the rural areas, it's just, it's just completely, it's almost like two different countries in some senses. Um, so it's really hard to say. So let's transition a little bit. So yep. we got big national issues mm -hmm. that Lesotho faces, sure. um, unemployment, health, slash HIV, political unrest, even mm -hmm. now, I think you mentioned, yep. there's a lot of, uh, you know, anxiety yeah. uh, and tension politically in the country. Um, but in the middle of that, you have this, um, I don't know how many acres Beautiful Gate is, but you have this, this village uh, mm -hmm. of people who care about the ministry that you guys are offering. Yeah. And um, say a little bit about that, like paint a picture for us of um, what Beautiful Gate kind of looks like and sure. the surrounding neighborhood yes. and how there there's kind of a different story that's, yeah. that's being told. Yeah, even among local people who set foot on our Beautiful Gate campus, they, they say there's something different about this place. And we've come to be able to call, it's kind of like a haven. 
um, an oasis, if you will. Um, and you, even visibly, you can see that because Beautiful Gate is one of the only places in the entire country that just has a lawn that's green grass, and we have a playground that the kids can play on and be kids. Um, so many of, of the kids in that culture grow up to the age of six or seven. The boys then go off to be a shepherd in the mountains, or the girls are rented out, so to speak, to be house help to people and help bring in money to their families. But these kids just have the opportunity to be a kid, which in that culture is unheard of in a lot of ways. And um, when we first started, we even had to kind of teach our house mothers what that meant. Um, we used to get donations of crayons all the time. And one time, uh, a house mother came to one of our volunteers and said, we don't know what these are. And so she literally sat them down and taught them how to color mm. so that they could then do that with their kids. Um, so we've come a long way in that regard. And, and Beautiful Gate is a place where a kid gets to be a kid. It get, they don't have to have that taken away from them like so many do. Um, we have a chapel, we have a preschool, we have uh, a clinic, and, and we are able to employ 45-plus local staff, local Basutu people as house mothers, as maintenance men, as office workers, um, and just be able to provide that for people in our community. So that's huge. Um, I mentioned the preschool. It's our building, but the program is run by the local Christian school across the street. So their teachers come in, they rent the building from us, and that means that I think this year it was around 15 of our Beautiful Gate kids were able to go to preschool for very, very low fees, but we also were able to provide an opportunity for 40-plus local village children to go to preschool that would not have had the opportunity otherwise. So that's a really cool bridge that we've gotten to build in our community. And kind of the coolest one that I, I shared with you earlier today, um, an example that kind of goes over our head to some extent, but when someone passes away in Lesotho, um, you can't just be buried like wherever you are. The body has to be transported back to the village where they grew up, to their family, yeah. um, and all these different hoops have to be jumped through in order for that to work. But as you can imagine, so many of our children, we have no idea where they came from. And so if a child passes away in our care for a while, we, were, we didn't know what to do. But over the years, as we were able to cultivate this positive relationship with our local community, proving that you know we're not just a group of white people who have come in to steal your children and sell them, mm. but we're providing life and hope and Wasn't joy. Wasn't that the story? Yeah. Did you have to kind of yeah when we that first gap? when we first kind of came in, adoption was unheard of. The Basutu people and still some of people don't really understand adoption, mm. and so they thought we were human trafficking. They thought we were. Uh, coming in, stealing their children, and selling them for money, for our own profit. And so it took some serious discussions and, and proving that that's not what we're doing. We're here to provide uh, a new life, a new opportunity, a second chance to these kids. Um, so when we kind of had that relationship established now, uh, the local chief in Hatetsani, our, our neighborhood, has told us uh, if a child is to pass away, they just say, these Beautiful Gate children are Hatatsani children. They're our children. They're our, part of our village, part of our family. Mm -hmm. And so not only are they allowed to be buried and put to rest in the local cemetery, there's a whole section of the cemetery that is kind of cordoned off for Beautiful Gate. And, and like I mentioned, it kind of goes overhead and doesn't seem like a lot from our Western perspective. But in that culture that is so deeply ingrained in them that you stick to your own and you do not you do not reach out to others. Mm. That is absolutely huge. Um, it is one of the greatest signs that we have had that our community accepts us as part of them. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible yeah. affirmation. Um, as you 
do your work as a uh, North American ambassador mm-hmm. and go to local churches here, um, throughout the States and Canada. Yeah. Um, do you ha- do you ever travel with any of the Basutu people? Like, is there anyone that ever mm-hmm. comes along from Lesotho? Generally, no. Um, we're currently in a lot of transition right now. So I'm transitioning into this role as North American ambassador. Um, but our current directors, Brian and Anita Gurink from Zeeland, Michigan, are also trans- in the state of transition as well. They will be coming to the end of their commitment in uh, late 2017. And so the new directors have already been been selected. Peter and Lindy Way Kirstein. Lindy is a local Masutu woman. Peter is a white South African guy. And they have both served very, very long with, with, uh, beautiful gate, almost from the beginning. Um, so they're going to be stepping into that role. And we've all talked about how much fun it's going to be to get Lindy to come over to the United States. Um, she's such a riot. All of the, the international volunteers who come through and have interacted with her just adore her. And that was kind of part of the affirmation for us to extend that invitation to become the new directors to them. Mm. Um, so as of now, I don't personally travel with with anybody i would i really would love to just um for me it would be such a an interesting experience to see how they then they've seen how i perceive their culture i'd love to see how they perceive our culture yeah what do you do in um lesotho for fun like what do you personally (laughs) yeah um a lot of it is uh just kind of going out on little mini adventures like on the weekends in 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 lesotho as i mentioned 80% 80% of the country is really rural. It's all in the mountains. We're at the lowest point in Macero, and it's about a mile high. It's about where Denver, Colorado is in terms of altitude. And so anywhere else you go is up from there. And one of my favorite things to do is go to a little village called Samongkong, and they've got this really nice lodge that you can stay at, and you can have lunch out on the patio, and it's literally a road that goes through it, and it's just village life happening right in front of you. And then you can go on probably an hour-long hike up to Maletsunyani Falls, which is actually a Guinness World Record for being the longest single-drop waterfall in the world. And if you're bold enough to, you can actually uh, rappel down alongside the waterfall. So that's pretty cool. Have you done that? Uh, I've done that three times. Um, Uh I'm still here, so it's a lot of fun. Um, A lot of it, too, is just kind of um, building relationships and, and... I do that for fun with some of the other volunteers that are there, and we'll do. We have our own kind of vol- international volunteer uh, Bible study that we do together once a week. We'll set up the projector, and we have a whole hard drive full of movies that different um, missionaries in the past have kind of passed down. And so we'll watch, have a movie night. Um, and if we're we're really ambitious and we have kind of a slow week and we're able to go off campus, we sometimes go off and venture into South Africa and go on a safari or take a week trip to Cape I saw, Town. I saw your picture with a lion. Yeah, yeah so that was kind of cool. Yeah, so there's and, and and that's the thing for some people, they come to Africa and and, and we understand that like, when are they ever going to come to Africa again? Right. So we we really do encourage being able to <laughs> explore explore and. Find the beautiful things. Yeah, because I mean, it is fun and it is, you know, not necessarily the reason you came, but it's still exploring the beauty of what God has created. Yeah. And yeah. So you mentioned volunteers. So I want to kind of transition for a minute. Um, And we talked this afternoon about kind of the double-edged sword. Yes. That is the volunteer world. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I work in volunteer world. I'm constantly working with volunteers. Yep. Um, I totally get it. Uh, What... 
Uh, tell, what's your schedule for volunteer groups that come mm -hmm. to Lesotho? And um, let's just start with that. Tell sure. us a little bit about and maybe some parameters that you guys have put on yeah. volunteering. And, yeah, let's yeah. start with that. So, yeah, I am pretty much in charge of all the short-term teams that, that come. There's another person. when you say short-term, how, how long are these teams coming? Usually they're on the ground between 10 and 14 days. Okay. Um, and between all the flights and if they want to do outside excursions, they're usually on campus at Beautiful Gate between six and seven days. And are they primarily coming from North America or Europe? Or? The ones that I work with are all from the United States and Canada, but we do often receive teams from Australia, from Great Britain. Um, for the first time, we're going to be having a team from South Africa come. We've had a couple people come from the Netherlands. So okay. we get a, a wide variety of, of people coming from all sorts of different cultures. If you had to identify why they come to Beautiful Gate <laughs> from these places, mm -hmm. What would you say? Why why do they come with a group of how many people? Uh, we recently put on uh, a limit of twelve. Okay. So and, and sorry, I I didn't let you finish about how often you allow right. groups to come. Yeah. So I'll do that first. Um, in the past, we've ranged about eight to ten short-term mission trips per year, um, and this year we put in. Uh, a parameter of no more than one team per month, just because we saw when there's more than one team per month, how much stress um, it puts on our house mothers. And it really riles up our kids because there's so many new, honestly, white faces for them to kind of perform for. Um, and it really, it's, it's a lot of extra work for the house mothers to always be training new people coming in who will only be leaving a few days later. Um, that's a little bit how I feel in my house sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my kids are always like, who's coming over tonight? Who's right. coming over? And it's like, tonight is nobody. Mm -hmm. You know, just our family. And I can yeah. see the disappointment. <laughs> yeah. the, this, anyway. No, for sure. Like, so it's so you put those pretty hard parameters yeah. on who can come mm -hmm. and when they can come. Right. And w mostly for your moms and for the kids to have a little bit healthier mm -hmm. rhythm. Right. Because that's kind of, for me personally, that's one of the biggest challenges for me is this balancing act of I'm representing the U.S. and Canada in terms of who comes, and um, we're a 99% donor-funded organization, so it really is necessary to have people coming and being able to see and then going back and being their own ambassadors and, and spreading the word that way. Uh, word of mouth, I can't tell you how helpful that is in, in getting the message out, even, even amidst the world of social media that we have. Um, and so that's really important to have them coming through for that purpose, just to make sure that we're able to continue providing care for kids financially. Yeah. Um, but then the other side is constantly, constantly, constantly reminding myself that my first priority is still these children and these house mothers who have given their lives to care caring for the kids. Mm. So what's best for them? How can I do this part of my job while still making sure that they're cared for, that they're able to thrive and do well? Because that's I mean that's our purpose for being there right so if we need both of them in order to like if we don't have a purpose there's no reason for teams to come but if we don't have teams and and other financial means coming in we don't have a way to provide for the kids so it's this constant back and forth trying to find where does it level out so now to the question why do groups come yeah and and this is obviously kind of a loaded question yep. and it's gonna go a number of different directions mm -hmm. and I know that um, you know, this can be a little bit of a sensitive yeah, issue. Yeah, it can be difficult. Because most of us, even in this room, have mm -hmm. been on trips like 
yeah. what you're describing. And I think for many of us, including myself, mm-hmm. yeah, um, me it, and you, yeah, it had a tremendous impact on my life. Yes. Um, but it wasn't the reason I went. Right. No, I totally agree. I grew up in the church going on mission trips. I was the same way. Um, so I do see people come for a variety of reasons, but especially short-term groups that come generally are coming with this idea that they have something to offer that that community needs. Mm. Like God is going to use me to change, maybe not the whole culture. And I'm seeing less of that, thankfully, but I have seen people coming in thinking that in 10 short days, they're going to change what's been ingrained in a culture for 60 years Mm. um, because they believe that whatever, wherever they come from, usually a Western country, that the way we do things is the right way, the best way. So we need to make sure everybody's doing it that way, mm. which I think Wait, that's not true. I, th- I was about to say, I hope you and I both know that, but, <laughs> but no, it's, it's not true. Mm. Um, and that's some, that's a surprise to a lot of people I've, I've been finding, which is sad in some ways, in a lot of ways. Um, but so yeah, you got that, that kind of extreme white savior complex. Um, but what does that mean just for those that yeah, maybe it's don't just, know what it's, white savior complex is? It's just this idea of of us Westerners, we have, like kind of like what I mentioned, that we have something that that community needs, that we're going to go in, we're going to make everything better, we're going to solve the problems that, for a lot of these places, not just Lesotho, third world countries all over the world who have been struggling with for a long time, that somehow we have the answer and we're going to provide salvation. But isn't that what Jesus does? Isn't he American and <laughs> isn't, isn't, isn't like the gift to the world Americanism and Jesusism as aren't they this like the same thing? If it were that easy, Nick, I don't think we'd have as many problems as we still do. <laughs> so, um, so the groups that come, yeah, the intentions are often good. If yes. you, you like people go with the heart that they are going to, change transform the world yep um but i'll leave that the rest to you yeah so intentions are almost always 100 percent good perhaps misguided but good um and what i always always end up seeing is and i think anybody who's been on a short-term mission trip um, and really actually took something from it realizes this too in their heart that you always go to those things expecting to give a ton but you get so much more out of it than you give. And I've seen that time and time and time again, whether it's a high school team that comes or whether it's a 70, 80 year old man that's on the team that happens. Um, and the, the local people, they teach them so much. And I know for me, I mentioned downstairs that I've learned more about my relationship with God, what it means to be loved by, by the father, by the Abba, to be adopted into his family in the last year and a half than I ever learned going on all these different trips and, and being in Christian college and, and Sunday school throughout my whole life. This year and a half has been so impactful for me to see what it truly means to just trust in him and and give yourself over to him and be humble enough before him to say, okay, God, I can't do anything for your kingdom by myself, by my own power. So if you want to use me, use me. Hmm. And I am okay with the fact, like you mentioned earlier, I'm okay with the fact that I'm not going to receive the credit for this. And I'm really thankful to be able to say that most of the teams that come in with kind of that misguided um, reasoning behind it to begin with, usually go home having that transformed feeling as well, realizing that, wow, um, 
I really need, I needed this. They didn't yeah. need me. I, so I didn't, Lesotho didn't need me. Beautiful Gate didn't need me. I needed Beautiful Gate. I needed Lesotho. Right. Right. I mean, it's the Sermon on the Mount. The first yeah. line is, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit mm-hmm. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Luke yep. even goes farther and says, just blessed are the poor. Yep. Like he doesn't even say blessed are the poor in spirit. And people are like, well, that just means those of us who are humble. And Luke's like, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the poor, the ones who wake up and go, I don't know where bread's coming from. Mm-hmm. And and Jesus says those are the teachers in the kingdom of God, right? Those are the ones that we ought to be learning from, yep. not the ones that we ought to be going to fix and change. It's like right. when you when you go sit with them, go as a student, mm-hmm. you know, as a learner. Um, yeah, you may offer something as a friend, uh, but so often, and, and I've been guilty of this. I mean, I've said it from, you know, platforms where I was trying to encourage people to, um, give to this mission trip that we're going to go bring God's love. Mm-hmm. That's what we were going to go bring Yeah. instead of, you know, we're going to go experience and receive God's love. And yes. I, I think I still am a, um, I could be a pro- proponent of. Uh, you know, a mission trip of some sort. If the mission is transformation of my soul, yeah. And uh, if I if I'm able to go as a as a guest mm-hmm. and as a friend and as a servant, ultimately yeah. of that culture of those people, um, mm-hmm. not to say that we don't have anything to offer, right? Or that we don't have a perspective that um, other people need as an mm-hmm. outsider. I think that's the beauty of of being outside a culture is you bring a perspective to it, right? So in that vein, you step onto American soil after six months in Lesotho. (laughs) Missionaries talk a lot about culture shock. And there's the shock of going into your new culture, and then there's the return uh, from coming out of that culture back to the place that you left. Yes. And you're kind of like doing both. Yeah. And so you you got like double shock going on. Um, I don't know. I don't know what like they call that. that. But <laughs> say say a little bit about what you experienced when you when you came back this time into the United States. Yeah. And for me, coming back has always been harder, honestly. I think going there, I didn't experience as much culture shock just because I had so anticipated it being completely different from anything I had experienced before. And so in that way, I was almost prepared for it. But then coming back, it's like... Yeah, I'll, I'll just say what I told you earlier, because specifically this time around, coming back, um, I've had time to reflect a little bit more than I did the last time I came back. And I came back and I literally physically felt just this oppression almost in my spirit. Um, and I didn't, I didn't feel that before. And like I said, I think it's because it was such a whirlwind coming back home, getting the funds raised to go back and start this position. But since I got back this time, that's what I felt. And say what you mean about oppression. Right. Um, You're saying just, coming on, coming from Lesotho and yes. beautiful gate where you yes. were so coming, stepping into coming back into my original culture that I had experienced life in for 22, 23 years up until that point. I have felt this oppression in my spirit that I had never felt before. It was as if I needed to get out of that. And I know that's what it was. I needed to get out of, what I was used to and then come back into it to realize that it had always been there. It's this oppression of distraction of material possessions that we, we distract ourselves with all the time, all these different, different things that we, we place value on in our Western American culture. Um, 
And we talk, you talk a lot about in third world countries how you see so much spiritual warfare like physically manifested, so demons and, and what have you. And we wonder, man, why doesn't that happen in the United States? And I just, it hit me this time around. I'm like, it doesn't need to be that blatant because we do all of Satan's work for him by preventing the spirit from being able to work at us. Mm. Um, we're so intellectually minded. We're so focused on going, 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 doing, 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 attaining, 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 that we never leave room. Well, I shouldn't say never, but most of us hardly ever leave room for the spirit to work and move in us. Mm. And I think that's, I started feeling that. I realized how easy it was, first of all, to come back into this culture and into my life here and fall back into old routines and old habits. Um, and as I started to slip into that this time, that's when I felt it. It's almost like I hit my head on it. I was like, wait, what's this? And it was, and it was the scarier thing. I told you earlier, the scariest part about it was realizing that that wasn't new, mm. that that had always been there. I was just too blind to see it until having had this cross culture experience. So it's, it's like you have this new lens that you've developed as yes. when you live outside of, you know, your, your first culture, you develop yeah. a new way of seeing. Mm -hmm. And then when you step back into that culture, uh, you see things clearly yeah. and for what they are. And I think mm -hmm. if I could say there was a real reason for North Americans to practice mission trips or longer mm -hmm. periods of time of travel uh, or time outside of their you know, normal routine and home, mm -hmm. that thing that you're, you've developed um, is what we need. Is yeah. We need that lens to, to know our own culture. And I think being away does that. It and does. that is also the gift of, you know, the foreigner and the stranger among us mm -hmm. um, because they can speak prophetically into yes. our culture. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know if you experienced this, but even at some level, your gift to the beautiful gate community um, is you have the opportunity to speak prophetically and as an outsider yeah. to, to that culture as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, we just we we really celebrate your faithfulness and God's faithfulness yeah. uh, to you uh, in that time there. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, just open it up, kind of for people here. You got a lot of people, uh, a number of people, six people, who <laughs> have uh, a piece of them is also in in Beautiful Gate and mm -hmm. have probably given to it or maybe been there or maybe lived there, Brenda and. Um, maybe have questions for you as well that sure. uh, I just want to give them some space to ask right now too. So mm -hmm. go for it, Harold. Uh, with the ones that have been adopted, yes. are they younger or older? Because a lot of times orphanages, when the kids get a certain age, they're not really easily adopted because people want younger children. Yeah. Great question. I'm going to repeat it for this too. Okay. So Harold's question was what happens when kids get a little bit older at beautiful gate? Um, yep. are, you know, is it, where do they go? And right. So yes, beautiful gate. Um, we do serve children who are birth to five years old. Primarily there are a few extenuating circumstances that allow us to keep kids beyond that. But barring those circumstances, when a child reaches the age of five, we have to look into transferring them to a new facility. Um, the reason for that is it's actually a self-imposed limit um, so that we can provide the best quality care for the kids we do have, just since there's so many. And so if we extended the age range, we'd have more kids than we knew what to do with. And because the, um, the needs for a child over the age of five are so different, 
um, to kids under the age of five. So that's what happens if they get to that point. We, we do have to look at transferring them to other facilities. And honestly, that's, that's the hardest part for us at Beautiful Gate because not trying to, you know, be prideful or anything, but just in terms of resources, Beautiful Gate is easily the uh, best care facility in all of Lesotho. So anything else than that is sort of a downgrade for our kids in, in terms of the care that they get. Um, but also to answer the other question you had in terms of is it how easy is it for older kids to get adopted, it really depends. It's true that a lot of a lot of families really want the younger kids and and the reason for that is i think it's evident they want to be able to experience a lot of those firsts with their child they want you know see the first steps hear the first words um, they want to experience it as if they had given birth to their own child and there's nothing wrong with that um, but we do definitely see a lot of our older kids especially recently who are kind of getting to that point where they're aging out and there's not a lot we can do for them and the hardest part of that for us is that those kids understand and they know what's going on. Um, I, I had an experience with a six-year-old boy last year who had been there since he was about two. And for four years, he had seen kids come and go. He'd seen so many of his friends um, come and go to the point where he understood that when uh, he, a child got to go off campus with our social worker, he knew that meant they were going to get their passport picture taken because they had been matched with a family. And one day we watched that happen. He was standing there holding my hand and he watched a two-year-old boy get marched out to, to go get their picture taken. And he looked up to me and he said, Abuti Tyler, when is it my turn? And, and we've had other older kids ask other, other volunteers, why do people only want the babies? So they get it. They, they're not they're not these poor little orphans that, you know, oh, we need to go in and save them kind of thing. Like, we want to provide homes and families for them, but it's not out of a, a salvation and salvific kind of thing. We're not saving them. Um, we just want to be able to provide for them the love and care that, that they already do receive from their Father in Heaven um, and that we try to provide to the best that we can in our limited abilities as, as care providers. But it, it's, it's hard. It's heartbreaking. That's brutal. Yeah. I remember three years ago when we were talking and you were thinking about next steps in your life and feeling like you wanted to be in the world and um, just hearing some of your stories today. I mean, you are, you, you your heart is like constantly, it sounds like just ripped out and, yeah. um, Say a little bit about that and, and what you have learned uh, about love and yourself and yeah. how you feel like God is shaping you through this experience. Mm -hmm. um, I often share with people, they always ask, so what, what have you learned? What's the biggest thing you've learned? Um, and honestly, love is a huge one, but the big, biggest one for me is trust. What does it mean to truly trust God? And the ways in which he's taught me that are, were never things I would have expected that would teach me trust. Um, and I'll share one story. It happened this past year. Um, that's kind of been the pinnacle of that for me. Um, there was, so I spent my first full year at Beautiful Gate was just kind of as a normal long-term volunteer in the baby houses, day-to-day, um, helping do dishes, laundry, all that kind of stuff, caring for the kids, whatever the house mother needed me to do. Um, I did that for a year. And as you can imagine, I got really close with my house, with my house mothers, with my, the kids in my house, so much to the point where, I mean, they're not my kids, but they're my kids. And there was 
one uh, set of twins in my house in particular, a little boy and a little girl, who I really, really grew close with. And, and when I finished that stint, that, fr- that year stint, and was at home, they were constantly on my mind, and I'm like, I'm so excited to go back and see them and, and play with them and be with them. And I got back uh, in January of this year, and they were still there, and we had a blast. And, and I can't go into all the details, but their story of how they got to us in the first place is a hard one. And so I was just so happy to see that with all of the hard things that had been in their past, these three-year-old children were able to ha- be joyful and happy and play and, and be sarcastic and sassy and play tricks on, on you. Um, it was just joy to my heart. But unfortunately, uh, this year, we've had to transfer seven different kids to facilities, and they were two of them. And the month before they were transferred, three other of our boys were transferred to another facility, and I remember talking with the volunteer who had to go with them, and it was just a tragic experience, and I could only think selfishly, thank God I did not have to go and do that because I don't know what I would have done. Well, I probably shouldn't have thought that because a month later is when I then had to go with these two who I loved desperately um, and take them to another facility. Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, I thank God that this other facility we went to was was a Christian-run facility, but as I mentioned earlier, they don't have resources. So I don't know the quality of care. These children are easily the youngest um, children there by three years. There's a hu- a, at least a three-year age gap between them and the next youngest. And... And that brings up a whole new slew of, of difficulties. You, you just never know what older kids will do to younger kids. Um, but my heart broke that day because we were walking around, kind of getting a tour of this facility. I was holding hands with the little girl and another volunteer was with the little boy. And you could tell that they thought of this as a field trip. They're like, oh, what a special day. We get to go out one-on-one with our friends and, and go on this adventure and a road trip, having no idea that they'd have to stay until... Me and the other volunteer stood at the car. I let her hand go, and she went with one of the the people from that facility. And she turned around with this big smile on her face, and I literally saw the realization come over her, and her face slowly fell as she realized, you're leaving me here. Mm -hmm. And for me, going in to this, doing this, like my purpose for being there is to care for these kids. And a lot of them have these abandonment stories and and I never like my my goal was always to to help them get through that and be a part of of the redemption of that and here I am standing feeling like I'm abandoning them Mm. and that was the hardest literally it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life I I cried myself to sleep the next couple of nights and I still when I see a picture of them I still tear up a lot of the times Mm. I completely lost it presenting this story one time a couple of weeks ago um, it still really touches my heart in, in the hardest ways. But long story short, I had to come to the terms a few days later because I was not functioning, where I had to go to the Lord in prayer and say, God, I can't do this. I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what's going to happen to them. But there's nothing I can do about it. So I have to give them over to you. I have to trust that the years that they spent with us is going to be enough that the seeds that were planted, they're going to take root. They're going to take hold. You're going to provide a way for them because you love them infinitely more than I even do. And, and I love them a lot. So I've had to learn to trust God with those kids. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, it was never a way that I thought I'd learn, learn trust. And it was obviously never a way I would choose to learn trust. But it's been the most effective way that God has taught me to learn trust. It strikes me that 
I think for a lot of us, um, we would just say, I, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. And um, for others of us, um, maybe it would be, uh, you know, well, I can, I can rescue them and um, save them and not um, give them up or let them go um, mm-hmm. or, you know, hold on to uh, this thing loosely. And the, the way that, you know, that you obviously had no choice um, mm-hmm. But the way that it, it came about is really, I mean, at some level that that's like the definition and nature of surrender and trust for a lot of our lives. Mm-hmm. And um, just that story of our, you know, sort of this dream and this, this beautiful uh, little person that you've invested in yeah. looking back and seeing that disappointment. Um, but that, that path that you've taken is um you know is the path to to growth is through yeah. that pain and to mm-hmm. walk through that is um and i just want to say i like i see that level of maturity in you uh even from <laughs> from three years ago like mm-hmm. that you've loved through very very hard things and you mentioned having kind of an affinity for people in, in social work and child protection kind of uh, services and feeling like, okay, I get that. And I, and you understand the, the burnout, um, in, in those roles and the fatigue that sets in because the disappointment is so real and there is so much letting go, Mm -hmm. um, that you almost fall off. It's, it's, it's kind of like you're on this, you know, this mountain Ridge and on the one hand is, just cynicism and it doesn't matter anyways. And then the other hand is I can't let them go. I have to control. And that Ridge is, um, you know, God, I give them uh, to you. These are your children and I'm going to continue to faithfully show up and have my heart be broken and split open. And that's the courageous path and the one that you've chosen. Um, and I just want to applaud you for that and say, I'm, I'm challenged and moved and stirred by that. So thanks for leading us in that way. Um, any other questions? Yeah, Dale. Yes, uh, I was uh, kind of wondering if you have had any uh, contact uh, with some of the early adoption children, mm-hmm. and h- how has the change from one culture to another, how has that worked out for them, yeah. for them and their parents? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's, a very well-timed question because the week before I, I was here in, in California, I spent in Vancouver, Canada, um, where the majority of our international adoptions have gone. There's probably about 30 or so children from Lesotho who have ended up in Canada. And the whole week that we were there was literally just visiting with former adoptive families and, and families that are, are still um, in the adoption process again. Um, but I will tell you that those kids are thriving, absolutely thriving. Um, I don't know. It's 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 true. You often hear in adoption that um, you know it's clear that God had always intended for this to be my child. You hear that a lot from families, but I I really saw that brought to life in that week because you know these kids. That's mom and dad. Like it doesn't matter that I'm black and they're white. It doesn't matter that I'm Basutu and they're Canadian or I'm Basutu and they're Swedish or whatever have you. That's mom and dad. They're the ones who are feeding me and clothing me and providing for me. 
um, the kids get it. And just as much as the kids understand from a young age that they, at Beautiful Gate that they're very different from a lot of their friends that they go to preschool with, that I don't have a mom and dad like they do, just as much as they understand that, they also understand that I have been brought into this forever home, that I don't have to worry about that anymore. And I mean, there are times, especially initially, and, and it really, it does depend on the age in which they're adopted. The older, the older they are when they're adopted, the more baggage they have that they bring into that relationship. Um, and so a lot of it does depend on the individual child. Um, and most children will have kind of spells where they, they kind of revert a little bit and they're, uh, they struggle and, and just talking about that brings to mind um, one one family ha- did say that there are there are brief moments when when my my child will still surprise me and they'll come up and ask me mommy what if what if you don't one day decide decide not to love me anymore like like happened to me before um, but honestly from from what I experienced and saw those are very 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 few and far between um, and for the most part they're thriving and doing very well it's a great question, Dale. And so the oldest uh, child from to be adopted from Beautiful Gate right now would be 20? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know specifically, um, but I do. There, it's actually a pretty cool story, short story. Um, I don't know if she's the oldest one to have been adopted, but there was a young girl... Um, who had been at Beautiful Gate, and honestly, I don't know if she's actually been, she was adopted or if she kind of grew up in the system or not, but she grew up and is still in Lesotho locally, and as an adult, she came back to Beautiful Gate to serve uh, as a volunteer. Um, And before they could even make introductions between her and the house mother that had cared for her, the house mother recognized her right away, and they both broke down into tears, Mm. and and just, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment, so... Mm. I mean, even, even for those kids who, you know, don't get kind of what we hope ultimately hope for in adoption, um, Beautiful Gate still is able to provide so much for them um, in terms of, you know, working through a lot of a lot of the difficult things that they've had to endure in life. Even if, like I've said time and time again tonight, from a young age they get it, they get it, they get it. Yeah. So. Other questions. Do I have any other questions? <laughs> oh, yeah. You had mentioned about the teenage girls that were gang raped and yeah. gave birth. Is there anything provided for those mothers yeah. at Beautiful Gate or through the government? Yeah, well, um, definitely not through the government, unfortunately. They're the ones who... Um, like here in the States, we have kind of the no questions asked rule. If, if someone brings a child to a fire department or hospital, at no questions asked, you drop the child off. That's that. If something like that were to happen in Lesotho, the government would say, too bad, so sad, your child, you deal with it. Um, so the government really isn't doing anything to help that. Beautiful Gate as an organization, we're not able to do that just because of the very f- the focus of what we have. It's it's more specific than that, but there are ministries um, in Lesotho, and there's one in particular called the Good Shepherd Center. It's only about 25 minutes from our campus, and their whole ministry is to minister to 
young unwed mothers and a lot of them will go even when they're still pregnant and they're able to have their children there they provide daycare and schooling for children who get to be about preschool age while the mothers are able to take classes and do life skill training and so that they can have all the skills necessary to be able to provide for their kids um, so there are there are some of those programs and that's that's actually run by um, that particular ministry is run by a group of, of Catholic Basutu nuns, um, some of the nicest, most warm women you'll ever meet. Um, but unfortunately, it's it's definitely very much little interest groups who feel called to help them. There's not a lot of government or official uh, avenues that they, they can travel down. Any other questions? In a lot of places that uh, where the kids can't be adopted, how many is the death rate of children that you know have physical difficulty, you know, ailments or born with a defect that uh, don't get so lucky to come in the Golden Gate and everything? In terms of actual numbers, I I honestly really don't have any idea. Um, I just I just know that when they leave Beautiful Gate. Um, and if it, uh, kids who never come to Beautiful Gate, who are at other care f facilities, um, the chances of of not or of not yeah not being adopted or, or something like that are significantly higher, um, and part of that can involve you know passing away at a young age just because they're not getting the quality care that they need, um, and sometimes it means they're just kind of stuck in the system until they are an adult and. Similar, I mean, and they go through similar problems to kids in our own foster care systems who are stuck in the system and bounced from place to place. Like, it's it's damaging to their, their psyche and their emotional well-being. Um, and, yeah, it's it's hard. It's difficult. Good question, Harold. Um, last question. Yes. If you had to sum up Beautiful Gate in one word what would you say? Belonging. That's actually one of the slides in the presentation we've been using this year is trying to sum up Beautiful Gate in one word. It's, it's a place of hope. It's a place of life. It's a place of love. All of these things for sure. But all of those are encapsulated in the word belonging. Um, and like I started out saying, like anybody who sets foot on campus, they know that something's different. And it's because Beautiful Gate seeks to be a place for people to belong. We, we seek to, our mission is to glorify God by providing children and families the ability to grow spiritually, emotionally, physically, and intellectually, um, and to have a place to call their own, whether that means they are able to then eventually belong to a forever family or able to belong back to their own biological family or to belong to our community for however long we're able to have them, um, what have you. But more than that, even me as, as an international volunteer, it's a place where I belong. It's a place where people who are just visiting, trying to sell some you know, of their, their crops that they grew, it's a place where they belong. Um, one of the buildings on our campus, we rent out to another nonprofit organization that reaches out to teenage orphans. And they come in and they get um, ministered to and discipled, as well as they learn how to, it's called Jewels of Hope, and they make, these girls come and make their own jewelry and then are able to sell it. And the money from the, from those sales goes directly into a, their own bank account and they can use it to, to purchase school supplies and pay school fees or even to just help their families out. Um, 
those girls belong. Um, and that's, that's my ultimate message too. When I go around this side of the, this side of the ocean, when I'm in the States and in Canada making presentations is that even if you never do set foot on our campus, the message of belonging is one that God wants all of his children to know. Um, he's been very clear and evident about that to us at Beautiful Gate. And for me personally, he's really put it on my heart and made it a mission of mine. Um, and he's made it possible to do that in, in continuity with what I do for Beautiful Gate to let people know you belong, you belong, you belong. Mm. That's beautiful. Hey, Tyler, we th- thank you for your time. Thanks for being here with us. Yeah, thanks um, for having and me. We, and we love you and God bless you and your work. Thank you so much. And I just, I do just want to say thank you too to the river because if it weren't for you guys and the time I spent with you initially, I wouldn't be in this position today. So thank you guys for wrecking me and my heart in the best possible way. <laughs> How beautiful are the feet of the ones who share the good news of God.